that Maggie's actually going to expand that to talk about what it means when we engage in interpersonal communication in a positive way that helps to shape our experiences so that we have a deeper sense of compassion, authenticity, and connection with one another. Let me tell you about Maggie. She's an assistant professor of communication. She's also the director of graduate studies in the Department of Communication at the University of Arizona. She's currently serving as the president of the International Association of Language and Social Psychologists. And her research focuses primarily on positive communication during life transitions. Part of her research really emphasizes that positive commu communication and everyday talk can enhance positive experiences. It helps to facilitate positive relationships. And it generates, this is my favorite part, generates positive structures for living. And this is really, really valuable, particularly when we're talking about this partnership that we have with TMC. So this large healthcare organization, to really bring positive communication into organizations that are designed to help alleviate the suffering of others is really, really powerful. Maggie's also the co-editor of two books that she edited along with Tom Socha at Old Dominion University. One is called The Positive Side of Interpersonal Communication. And the other one, which I'm so honored, she gave me one of like a small handful of copies that she had, and no, you can't have it, because I treasure it, and it's amazing. It is called Positive Communication and Health and Wellness, and it's fantastic. It really unpacks how positive communication can be brought into these larger organizational systems, so that we can broaden compassion from, from simply just how do we strengthen it within ourselves to how do we actually build a culture of this in organizations. Maggie has either authored or co-authored more than a dozen book chapters and more than 20 peer-reviewed scientific articles uh, that have been published in well-respected journals. Her research right now is focusing on positive communication in end-of-life contexts, including elder care and health decision-making about situations including depression, cancer, organ donation, and vaccination. She's also, and very timely, I think, focusing her research on the intercultural and international adaptation among sojourners. Most recently, Maggie's been exploring savoring communication. You'll recall this from, I think Dave said last week, that savoring is going to be the next huge wave, like mindfulness. You're on the cutting edge right now, people. Uh, so she's exploring savoring communication to facilitate greater awareness and communication <coughs> exchanges to enhance positive communication outcomes even in difficult encounters. So with that, I welcome Dr. Maggie. Who, above all, brings chocolate. So if you did not receive a kiss from me when you came in, um, I'll, be, I'll be distributing those to you who came in just in the nick of time. So I'd like to thank all of you for being here because Without you, then I don't have an audience to share some of the important information about positive communication, about compassion, and about self-compassion. And I certainly want to thank places like the CORE that open up to all of us in this place of living and being together in order to share in healthful ways of, of living life and quality life. And to thank Leslie for um, taking a chance on me and for, for listening to one of my students who was, um, who was bright. <clears throat> so I'm very happy to be here today. 
and talk about communication. But what I thought we first should do is to generate the type of space that we want to be in. So I'm going to ask you to take a nice deep breath, and then I'm going to ask you, don't hold it in while I'm talking, because I talk for a long time, so go ahead and exhale. We'll do it again in a minute. You'll take a nice deep breath, and then when you exhale, I want you to think about blowing that air out so gently that you were teaching a child how to blow a bubble from one of those bubble wands. And as you do that, I want you to go ahead and create a little smile for me on your face. So we'll take a deep breath and then blow it out gently and smile. And so thank you. You've just done something wonderful for yourself. One thing that we know about smiling, about positive communication, about these gestures is that it releases some of those pleasant hormones, things that make us feel good. It also relaxes us, and it makes us look like a very nice and friendly and welcoming audience. So you've done something wonderful for you, and you've done something wonderful for me and everybody around you. And really, this is the point of positive communication, which is to be able to use our words and our gestures in order to make connections among and between people both strangers and those who are closest to us. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So communication is the study of word and gesture. That means um, everything from touch to vocal tone to eye contact and smiling and certainly the words that I say and how I say them. So when I talk about the study of communication, I'm really talking about the study of messages that connect one person to another individual. And this may happen face to face or in a small group or maybe slightly larger group like we have here, or it might happen over mediated channels as well. But what we focus on in communication as a field of science is studying that message and how that message is sent and received, how we interpret it, and what it does to us in different contexts. When I think about compassion and communication, what stands out to me is this opportunity to connect. Because one of the things that we try to do with communication, positive communication, positive communication is messages that we give in order to enhance quality of life or well-being, to take things that are pretty darn good and make them even better. So positive communication is not the study of what's going wrong or how I could maintain something. We think a lot about maintaining our relationships. I maintain my car, sort of. Right? But I don't want to maintain my relationship. I want to enhance it. I want to continually strive for something better in that relationship with my children, with my parents, with my husband. And I do that through forms of communication that create positivity. And compassion does something very similar. Compassion <coughs> and communication, excuse me, both start with this, um, this prefix of calm, right? Calm, compassion. That is suffering together, right? This kind of oxymoron in a way. So what is this sort of personal feeling that I'm having that is, that is suffering or that I recognize in another human being that is suffering? Thank you. I should have, oh, you're going to take that away? I thought for sure this was for me. No, <coughs> it is now because I'm drinking it. Right, okay. I gave you chocolate. Sorry. <laughs> 
I don't know what has come over me, um, but I promise that I was feeling well right before I started. Um, so communication and compassion both start with this beginning word, right? Come. It's a very small word, actually. Come. So what is this that brings us together? Compassion is recognizing the suffering in ourselves when we think about self-compassion, recognizing the suffering in others, recognizing that to be human, to be part of the human existence is to experience many different emotions and feelings, joyful ones, grief-filled ones, and ones that are suffering but also elation. So the human experience is beyond any individual emotion but the whole composite of all of them. And when I think about compassion and I think about communication, I think the part that we don't focus on enough is the element of together. So that little prefix, sort of the Latin root word of calm, means to attach, to be together, to be with, to unify, to assemble. And when I communicate with an other or few other individuals, I am somehow attaching myself to them. I am creating a relationship, a bond, or a thread that we might be able to feel between individuals or more people. And when I communicate with compassion, I am looking for that thread that says, I recognize that there is suffering. I recognize my suffering. I recognize your suffering. I recognize that to be human is to have a part of an experience that is suffering. And I am motivated to relieve or reduce or share the burden of that suffering. And I can do that only when I do it through communication. How do I communicate compassion? Our first two speakers of this series, and this is the Conversations on Compassion, so I think that's, to me, really compelling. Our first two speakers of this spe series talk to us about things like um, self-talk, so mantras that you might say, right, or um, prayers or messages of positivity that you might send to yourself. And I think, ah, yeah, that's communication, right? Or we talk about extending ourselves to demonstrate compassion to another, to send a um, nonverbal cue, like holding a hand with somebody or giving a hug, um, or, or saying something that might help that person, or offering another type of support that might help a person in time of need. And so there's a connection here between communication and compassion that I think we must continue to put at the forefront of our studies of human compassion. So I come from uh, a very specific area of human communication, which is um, the science of flourishing or positive communication, communication that we hope will enhance well-being. And people that I've studied under, such as John Nussbaum, who's at Penn State, make the argument that communication is across the lifespan, right? That we are born into communication. We are, are, when we are so lucky to be surrounded by loved ones and able to give a final message at the time of our death, we are surrounded throughout our life with important others and important opportunities to communicate. 
And so the argument is that communication really should be at the very heart of any reasonable notion of quality of life. Think about what makes your life worth living now besides the chocolate that I handed you. Mm. <laughs> it's your relationships. It's the connections that you've made with other people. And we do all of that through communication. And yet, when Leslie invited me to come and talk about compassion and communication, I thought to myself, great, I'm a scholar. What I'm going to do first is see what everybody else has already done on compassion and communication so that I don't do what they've done um, and so that I can bring to you a, um, some depth in the area of communication and compassion within my own field of study. And in a nutshell, it all came down to a recently published article in um, uh, a communication journal that focuses on religion and spirituality by Abek Roy, who says this about the study of compassion and communication. We, as communication studies scholars, need to put compassion at the center of engagement in our discipline, which means, of course, compassion is anywhere but in the center of our engagement, of our discipline. In fact, there are very few communication scholars that are looking at compassion, sometimes in the context of um, end-of-life communication and caregiving. We see compassion there. Um, we, we see some work on empathy, but we know that empathy is not the same as compassion. So I question why, okay? What is missing? Why aren't we studying compassion from this communication stance? Um, and so here we have these sort of uh, philosophical traditions. And the communication in much of our philosophical sciences within the United States is predominantly um, influenced by these um, ancient Greeks and these uh, Western roots of philosophy, which focus on things like um, thinking about objects as discrete units that don't have meaning unless I imbue it with meaning. So it doesn't, uh, it's not meaningful unless I give it meaning. Uh, the sort of tradition of analyzing things, dissecting things, breaking them apart, a really rational view of communication, a rational view of human existence, um, where uh, Compassion was not seen to be as something that would equate to um, a, um, a, a character's strength. It wasn't something that related to wisdom. Uh, in fact, compassion had been thought of and continues to be thought of as something that is maybe sentimental or emotional or something that interferes with the necessary distance in institutions or public decision making. Right, the things that affect all of our lives. There's an idea that these decisions should be made without compassion because compassion blinds us because it removes the distance. Alternatively, if we take an Eastern philosophical approach, which is where, um, where we come to today, thinking about the Center for Compassion Studies and the previous talks, uh, from this philosophical view, and also from the indigenous peoples of the Americas, right, and all over the globe, right, people who have a longer-rooted history, we see that um, the, the, what binds people together is a sense of substance. Things are, are living, growing entities. They're worthy in and of themselves. That things aren't discrete units. You are not individuals to me in here, but you are... Um, you are a mass, a living, breathing kind of uh, like an ecology to me in this room. And I can feel part of all of you. 
Um, so a holistic view or the recognition that all of these relationships, um, we're in a relationship now in this time and space, but you have multiple relationships outside of it. Where compassion is seen as a virtue and human suffering is seen as part of the human existence and that part that connects people together. And so we see the difference between this Western approach of individual freedom and independence, something that we think a lot about. I should be able to do it on my own, right? I should be the best at everything that I do. Um, I don't need help. Or this idea of collective stability, which is where we hold each other up and support each other in what we do, recognizing none of us are the best at what we do at any specific point in time, right? But it takes all of us to, um, to create something. So when I started with this notion, I thought, where can we understand, how can we as scholars and as practitioners of life, how can we apply these notions in a more holistic way um, to study communication and compassion? Uh, so what I do is I look at these positive forms of communication. Um, practices that elevate and enhance our daily um, experiences. Now, it's simple if I say to you, I'm going to give you the ABCs of something, right? So we think, okay, we've got a little song, we can sing the ABCs. Well, I don't have it for positive communication, but I do have the EFGs, okay? So positive communication, ABC was taken. Positive communication are messages that serve to enhance positive experiences and positive emotions. I'm going to just take a moment to expand that notion. When we increase positivity in our own life, don't forget to smile, remember? When we increase positivity in our own um, physical body, right, and in our relationships, in the spaces around us, then it allows us to do some great things. Um, our bodies heal faster, we're able to reduce our stress, we're able to increase those positive, um, those pleasure hormones, which makes us feel uh, happy, but it also does things like increase creativity, our ability to take in a wider scope. So if I'm feeling positive and happy and calm here, because you all smiled at me and we're all smelling chocolate, then I can take in this whole room and all the different faces and all the different facets of this room much more than when I'm under negative emotions and stress. My scope of vision narrows, my ability to think quickly and solve problems narrows, my creativity narrows, so we get a host of um, narrowing uh, events. When we use positive communication to enhance positive experiences and positive emotions, we have a lot of other subsequent um, physical, emotional, um, and social responses that are also positive. Positive communication also facilitates um, positive institutions, right? So we can think about incorporating positivity in the classroom as a coach of sports, in our places of work, in our places of leisure, all the places where we interact, places like um, La Encantada and the core. I think this is a wonderful space to bring diverse people together um, in, in, a, in, a, in a fun, nice, clean, bright spot. Right, so we can facilitate the structures necessary to continue to enhance positivity. Positive communication is also generative. So it generates positive behaviors and traits. Um, this is something that I work on 
really diligently with my own children, right? And we see how this um, happens in the public sphere. So sometimes people will say, wow, your kids were really well behaved. And I think, yes, they don't always say that though, right? Because they're not always well behaved. The idea is I try to use positive communication to reinforce their positive behaviors. And we enact what we call happy family. So if you see us and we're not happy family, you can remind us. We create the structure to do this, and what it does is generate within them the ability, the capacity, and the mechanism to recognize I'm doing this right, and it feels good, and, and people are um, commenting on that, and they appreciate that, and they like it. And so we can generate positive traits and behaviors, and guess what? That's mutually beneficial again. So remember when you smile at me, it relaxes me. I enjoy your company more, and I'm able to move with the flow, right? The more I smile at you and give you chocolate, the more you're going to smile at me, and this is all very um, a nice positive recursive loop. So I'll take a moment now to talk about two different elements of communication. So we have this idea of intrapersonal communication, what we might call self-talk. This is going to be the domain of self-compassion. We also have interpersonal communication. Interpersonal communication is that that occurs between um, people who small groups of people or a dyad, and they recognize the personal qualities of others. So it's not like a, a role that I'm speaking to you at in, a, in a role as somebody, but you as an individual. Intrapersonal communication um, is different from, the first two speakers were from um, a psychology background, and this seems like it's really in that psych domain, but let me make a distinction here. Intrapersonal communication is not <coughs> thinking. It's not those sort of thoughts that bubble across your mind. It's really purposive and specific. Intrapersonal communication or self-talk is highlighted by specific messages that you send to yourself for a purpose to yourself. You might refer to yourself, you probably don't, I refer to myself as Maggie, right? But you might refer to yourself by your own name or I or you and you may say something like um, you're on your way home, now is the time to let the work stuff you know, fall behind you, right? That's what I say. Um, so I think about messages to myself that's going to help me create a more positive atmosphere for me. So intrapersonal communications are specifically constructed for the person in your head, which is you, I hope, um, and it allows you to acknowledge, to do things like self-assess, be self-aware, um, to identify the things that went well, but also to criticize. And that is part of intrapersonal communication. We know a few things about intrapersonal communication. Um, about two years old, we start to see it and hear it, because when you're two years old, you don't hide that stuff. So the self-talk is overt. So two-year-olds say to themselves, you know, I get a treat, I'm a good boy because I went potty. Again, these are all coming from my life, right? Um, so it's overt. Not until about the year of six or seven does it go inside. And then we have insider talk, right? And then you think, ah, mom's probably going to give me a treat because I did this behavior, but he's not saying it out loud, right? I'm a, I guess I'm a treat giver because I've given you all treats. So now you know. Um, that's, that works sometimes. So we also know that we can have positive thought, a general positive way of, of thinking about the world, and we can also have positive self-talk. Positive self-talk is more effective in reducing negative emotions than is positive thought. So when you say to yourself, wow, you did really well on this, 
or um, it's okay that um, that I didn't do as well on this because I had a lot of things going on, whatever that is, those positive messages that can be self-reaffirming and reinforcing positivity are more effective in reducing stress, reducing negative um, emotions than are just positive thoughts. When you couple it with the pronouns, these are things you can practice. When you couple it with the pronoun you, so I think in my, my head, um, you have done this before, I know that you can do it again. The use of the word you or the pronoun you is more effective than I. I've done this before, I know I can do it again. So when I refer to myself as you, or I might flag myself with my own name, then I attend to my own message even more. So self-talk, as we're going to relate it to self-compassion, recognizing the suffering that you may experience, being aware of that, recognizing that other people are suffering as well, and then giving yourself a message to try to reduce that suffering, okay? And so that's how intrapersonal communication um, sort of works in the self-compassion notion. Many of the things that we can do in interpersonal communication, we can use in intrapersonal communication. So interpersonal communication is where I'm going to turn next. It's a little bit easier to study because we can measure the message messages that one person is giving to another. It's harder to study the messages that you give to yourself. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to bring to you today were some ideas for how you might use positive communication to enhance and elevate the positive things in your life. One of the reasons why we want to be able to do that is because I cannot be compassionate with myself or with an other if I can't see beyond my own suffering. If I am wrapped in my own negativity, my own negative emotional space, I can't think as freely. I can't experience as many nuances in my own emotional roller coaster. I can't communicate effectively because I can't perspective take. I can't make a message to you because I can't think outside of myself. So when we think about positive communication, we can think about using some of these strategies to open up our own minds, and even our own gestures to others that say, I'm open to receiving your care, or I am happy to send you support. I want to be heard, or I am being heard, or I am being listened to. So here's some, here's some tips that I would like to share with you about positive communication. There's a lot of asking what's going wrong. So flip it around. If there's one thing tonight that you could do to enhance your life is to ask the people around you what's going right today. At the dinner table, in the car, when we leave this room tonight, what is going right with you? If you're a physician, if you're a caregiver, what is going right with your patient? <coughs> that opens up the opportunity to identify positivity. Model happiness, you guys did this for me already, right? The smiling is a great way to do that. Model positivity. 
recognize achievements, share in celebration. There's been some interesting research on not just support giving if you're in times of, of difficulty, how can I give you a good message? But guess what? Sometimes we're in times of greatness. And when we're in times of greatness, we don't want somebody to say, oh, that's all right. Well, you know. We want them to say, that is great. Let's celebrate. I bet you feel really good about that achievement. I feel good for you. And when we have those messages, it feels good to us. Because by the way, it feels good when somebody compliments us, when somebody is generous toward us, they show us gratitude. The benefits are even bigger when you do it for somebody else. Your personal benefits are higher when you generate positive communication for somebody else. So it makes them feel good, but it makes you feel even better. It does wonderful things for your body and your mind, your spirit. Listen generously. This is hard for many of us. It's hard for me. To be open not just to the message, but what is behind that message that somebody is trying to convey to you. Some of us communicate with people who have communication difficulties, people who are end of life. They may have speech aphasia. They may have dementia. They may have autism. Um, all different types of communication disorders that are frustrating to communicate with. And yet, when I communicate with people who have these different forms of communication difficulties, what I have to remember is it is not the words that they're saying that is important. It is that they are connecting to me. They are communicating with me that we are creating a relationship through words, even though the words aren't the important part. And that's where we can show compassion. OK, then we get to savoring. Savoring is very exciting. And I know you know it's exciting because you get to eat your chocolate. So um, this is the part that I, you may have seen me last week. I was falling out of my seat because David was up here saying, savoring's the next big thing. And I was like, yes, it is. And I've got to get this article published before somebody else does. So don't. This is our secret here. And anybody who you know, watches it later. Uh, what makes life worth living? Okay, Quality of life. What makes life worth living? Well, we think about this. It's not the whole part. It's the moments. It's the memories. It's these little treasures that we are handed to us every day that we're able to anticipate. Oh, something good is coming. Hmm, Something good wrapped in purple tinfoil. Something that you can sustain, you can hold on to. And something that you can recall. I'll tell you now. Chocolate is really good for this part and probably this part. Eh, it's OK for the recall. Your personal relationships, meaningful communication, connecting on the human level with another person is great for all three of these. And that's where we're going to move with savory. So <coughs> savor this. All right, I'll let you know. I borrowed this whole thing, first of all, from the positive psychology field. Um, but now I'm trying to move it into communication. And part of the reason why is because psychology has really worked on how good it is for your brain and for your body to savor something. But these are all sort of physical experiences. And they also have a little line in like, oh, you might also savor relationships or communication. I'm like, might also. Yes, we're definitely doing that, right? And so savoring is the capacity to attend to and enhance the positive experiences in one's life. Now, I'll try to talk through savoring um, um, relatively quickly here. But you are welcome now to open up that tasty little morsel that's in front of you, if you wish. And if you don't have one, I have some up here. OK, 
Okay, you can think about how we might savor some sensory experience. What's the first thing that you savor with chocolate? Right, it's dark chocolate. I prefer dark chocolate, so I brought that to you. Some people savor other things. Wine, sunsets, something salty, right? This is the one I brought for you today. To savor, you have to have some intention, some deliberate quality that tells you to pay attention to an experience or a sensation that you're having. So I want you to think about that physical experience that you're having. Why don't you think about what you heard? Because I just heard a bunch of pieces of tinfoil. It's kind of satisfying, right? I see some yummy faces. I want you to think about what you focused on. Flavor, texture, like the density, the smoothness. Were you disappointed because the tip of your Hershey's Kiss was not totally a tip? Did you notice that? Is it already gone? Uh-huh, yeah. Savoring, we have to slow down a little bit, right? And so when we savor, we want to capture, to amplify, to prolong, usually a pleasant and usually a sensory experience. I'm going to throw those around a little bit because I, I, I think we can savor other things. We also have to have a level of meta-awareness. What that means is it's not enough to have just liked that chocolate that I gave you. You have to have liked liking it. Right? And you probably paid attention to that, right? Like, oh, this is pretty good. Oh, I like liking this. That's where savoring is. Savoring is the recognition that the pleasant experience that you're having is, is, um, is worth having, that you're, you're pleased about the pleasantry. Okay. And it allows you to time travel. So I talked about that a little bit already, but hopefully you just relished um, in that chocolate. It's difficult to savor if we're under duress. So when we have positive communication, we have more opportunities to savor. And one of the things that we know about savoring is it's kind of like intrapersonal communication. I have no idea whether or not you just savored that piece of chocolate. Okay, so can you let me know if you did? Uh-huh. I see smiles. I see some like, hmm, chocolate's not my thing, but that's okay. I get it. Later I'm going to have my wine or my hot bath or whatever it is. Right? How can I measure this? I measure this by asking questions and having you communicate it to me, either through your expressions or verbally. And so we can measure, um, we can measure savoring through communication, um, through communication. Which means that part of the savoring experience has to be us communicating it either with ourselves or with others. And we can capitalize on savoring when we share these delicious moments in our life with somebody else. When we say, I am enjoying this sunset, are you enjoying it as well? Right? And we can create that bond between people. So what I wanted to ask in a recent research project is, okay, what about the capacity to attend blah, 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 communication life? And what I found, which is no surprise, because I wouldn't be up here talking about it if I didn't find exciting stuff, so here's the exciting stuff. The short answer to this question is, yes, we can savor communication. I kind of thought that anyway, because people will often tell me about a conversation they savored, a moment that they savored, right? Especially when I work with um, end-of-life um, um, people. Um, but now I, now I have evidence, right? So I did, I did science to figure this out. Here's the science part. Um, this is the pretty picture part. So here are some of the things that we may savor. And then I'm going to wrap this all up 
um, and bring it back to compassion. People savor aesthetic communication. Uh, the use of elaborate, pretty language, a good joke, puns, things like that. Nonverbal appreciation. Think about holding somebody's hand or the smooth skin of a baby. Um, uh, things, uh, a good hug or a bad hug, right? Knowing the difference. People savor recognition and acknowledgement. People like to be recognized for what they do. But they also like to give recognition and acknowledgement to others. People savor relational turning points. These are I love you moments, but also um, guess what, we're having a baby moments, or um, where you recognize that um, maybe you're moving apart in different ways, but moments of communication where you recognize there's a change. Rare and novel moments, many of these had to do with illness um, and end of life. And shared experiences. So these are shared, mostly environmental experiences, but recognizing the importance of doing that with other people within a community. One of the reasons why we know that savoring, um, savoring works is because people talk about how in that moment time stood still. They talk about being able to replay these events and they use this vivid embodied recall. So one of the things about savoring that can relate to self-compassion is that when we are in times of need, we can recall a savoring moment and that gives back to us those same pleasant feelings. When you practice savoring communication and relationships, you can go back in time and recall the butterflies, the tears, the elation of that moment that was so meaningful and that may ground you in the present time to be able to communicate compassionately with yourself and also be open to sharing compassion with others. Let me give you um, one of my participants, a quote from one of my participants who said, um, she knew she savored because she wanted to save a moment forever and bo bottle it up forever so that on days when I feel sad or discouraged, when I'm suffering, then I can shove it back into my soul, right? This is a great, um, idea for savoring, that if we can capture savoring, to be able to taste it, feel it, recall it, then we can place it back into those important moments in our lives where we need to draw from the bank because we're depleted in that moment of time. So I think savoring and compassion relate really nicely. So grand finale, da -da 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 that's nice. Okay, how do we cultivate, so I know it's nice, self-compassion. So here's, the, here's kind of the big um, finale. So follow me here. I was supposed to do this one at a time, but here we go. You don't have to start with the suffering in order to be able to engage in compassion. Compassion for the self and compassion for others. You could actually start here. Why not? Why not start with the positive? Why not start with the what is going right? Savoring something. Recall something. I encourage you to do it at the end of tonight's discussion is to think and write a letter of gratitude to somebody or write a note to yourself that says, hey, this is a moment in my life that I savored and I savored it with you. Wow, that's a huge moment. When we savor, we have to first be mindful, otherwise we can't savor things. That's how we can roll those experiences around in our tongue, 
right? But also be able to smell everything that's in the environment, to remember what that person was wearing, where you were eating, what the stranger said to you at that time, what the lighting was like, everything that was there, that taste. If we're mindful, we can capture it. Now, mindfulness itself is not savoring, right? Because when we just want to be mindful, which is good, we can let things go. We don't want to trap it. This is kind of like the, you know, you want to collect your fireflies. This is where you're collecting your fireflies. Mindfulness can let those things float right by. When you're savoring, you're collecting those fireflies. And most of the time, we want to do it because we want to capitalize and enhance on something that is feeling good. This feels good, but it can feel better because I can enact savoring. I can slow it down. I can freeze time. I can really appreciate this full experience. We capture the positive emotions and experiences. That does good for us in that time. It also makes us open and available to our own self-compassion and recognizing the suffering in others and how we can connect to them. So it connects to our self-compassion and also, here's the next also new thing, which is the connection between savoring and resilience. When I need to tap into something, when I need to be resilient when life is tough, I can tap into these moments that I have um, my fireflies that are in my jars. I can, I can bring them out. Okay, so Pollyanna, right? Got it. Over here, I want to remind you that guess what? Although the Western approach to savoring says we savor all these good things and we make them better, the Eastern <coughs> approach says we savor and we experience things, maybe not this magnitude of happiness like we really like in the West. Let's feel happy all the time, right? But let's give it depth. Maybe slightly less happy, but a little bit more nuance into emotions that we in the West might find negative emotions, but are part of the yin and the yang, part of the human experience, part of what we all um, experience in our daily life. And so we can also capture our fireflies. I didn't want to put negative here because um, I think meaningful makes more sense. We can capture these meaningful moments. We talk, um, and my research team now is looking at intercultural perspectives on savoring. We talk about can you savor grief? And I argue, yes, you can. And we should because it is powerful and it is a human experience. And when we hold it in, it shows us that we connect to others, that we are human, that we do care, and that we can um, show compassion to ourselves and others. And when we can savor the negative experience and recognize them for what they are and for the value they bring in our life, then we can also use that um, to build our own resilience. Okay, so I did want to skip a few, but hopefully you'll have um, questions for me or feel free, please, to um, communicate with me after this or via email. Anyway, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate you all. The theory is that you allows me to distance myself from me. There's a lot of pronouns in my answer. Um, when somebody of importance in my life says to me as I'm growing up, you should do this, or you did this well, or you, yeah, 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 I take that into consideration because it's an important other. When I refer to myself as a you, I attend to it more because that's how I've developed a core part of my identity. So it's part of the distancing, but also the flagging that says, 
gee, I should really pay attention to me right now. So that's where the you comes into play. There's been some research to look to see if using my name might be even more powerful. It doesn't seem to be the case. So you can use you or your name. <laughs> yeah, we'll go here in the inspection a second. Right here, yeah. So my understanding is that empathy allows us allows us to feel the emotions of the other. What can happen with empathy is that I may not be able to get out of it. I, I tend to over-empathize with people. When I start moving my empathy into compassion, I become more proactive about m changing that state of empathy into something where I want to relieve um, some suffering, right? That I, 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 I may want to reduce that burden from you. I may not necessarily have to empathize to show compassion, um, but, but those two can, can go together. Um, I think one is more, I don't think I distinguish between them in that way. I think one allows me to be more proactive. When I'm feeling compassion, I can move beyond my empathy to try to do something to change the state of suffering. When I'm feeling empathy, sometimes I want to waller in that state of suffering. And I, I'll encourage you to talk to Leslie afterwards. She she's, uh, has an answer as well. But um, we can talk to her afterwards. Maybe, maybe I, I think kind of the same, but um, as the director of the Compassion the Center, um, maybe has some resources for us, too. You had a question? It can be. So when so the, the question is about savoring and resilience. So one of the things that makes us resilient is to be able to recognize that we have supportive others around us, um, that we can we feel efficacious, that we believe in ourselves and our own ability to manage to cope with something, and that's at the core of resilience. When I've captured enough savoring moments, and they don't, it's, it's, your chocolate probably isn't going to help you in a really time of distress, right? But a meaningful communication moment that you savor may allow you to time travel back to that moment in a sense and say, I was able to make it through this moment or I have these messages that are meaningful to me or something that I built that's ingrained into me. Um, so I, th I think capturing the memory of it is the important element, and then being able to use that to bolster yourself in times of distress. So it's one can be one component to resilience, but not all of it. Is there a, is it all genetics or environmental? What is the connection? I mean, are some people more naturally compassionate, or others just have to learn yeah, yeah, that's a great question. That's a big conversation question. Um, and so the short answer is we know that we can cultivate compassion. Um, we know that people from the nurturing element, um, parents can cultivate that compassion within their children, right? And so, so they can nurture it very early. And as that does, that makes that nice recursive loop to keep stabilizing that. Um, and that humans have a natural... Um, we universally we can feel empathy, universally we can feel compassion. And because of that, we know that there's a human connection there that is, that is worthwhile to support. Question, then I'll come back to you. Right over here. You talked about uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, so ruminating can be an element of self-talk where I replay negative experiences, right, and, and never really fix them. When I savor, what I want to capture is that part, even though I may be savoring a negative experience, I am savoring the pleasant element. So when I talk about savoring grief, I talk about that because I know I've made a greater connection to somebody, right, and that, and that I have had an important emotional response that should be validated. So I, I continue to focus on the part that is meaningful in savoring. Yeah. This, you had a question. Yeah, is, is prayer intrapersonal self-talk? So that's a great question. Um, <coughs> scholars in the field of communication who study prayer typically do not put it in the realm of intrapersonal communication because intrapersonal is you talking to yourself, though it sort of is in its own realm. Some people express their prayers outwardly, and when you are prayerful and thinking about communicating to an entity or an individual, then you are, you are doing something that is more akin to interpersonal because you're constructing a message for an other and not for yourself. Any more questions? Then let's do this. Um, Dr. Pitts is offered to hang around. Um, after, if you have a, a question you wanted to ask her directly, she can hang around for a few minutes.